Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Owen Jones here. Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Now, Chelsea Manning is the world's most famous whistleblower. She was incarcerated after exposing US atrocities. She suffered solitary confinement. Now, we talk about her coming out as trans, about Donald Trump, where next for the US left, and why resistance will only grow. Very quick housekeeping. The new podcast, all about offering an alternative to a grim, grim right-wing media landscape. Take on injustice, speak truth to power, offer optimism and hope, show there's another way, and have fun. Loads of interviews, discussions, documentaries for you to listen to. We want to expand and offer even more content. We've got a team on union wages. Anything you donate via the supporter function in the podcast description is really, really appreciated. Or go to patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. There you can become a regular supporter. You can have a say over who we speak to, what we talk about, what issues we focus on. Whatever you do, like this podcast, please, 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 on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast and share the show with your, your friends, your family, your workmates, anyone and everyone. Bear in mind, this was reported a few weeks ago, so before the attempted coup, the way interviews will now be up when they're recorded, but Chelsea's story and thoughts are timeless as you will hear. Hey Chelsea, what an absolute honour, oh my word. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, I don't think, I've, well I've never met, I've never interviewed anyone even half as courageous, so this is, I will do the fanboying bit, I'm just going to get that out of my system, I hope you can tolerate that to some degree. It happens. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. Um, I just want to kick off. Let's kick off. Um, just in terms of, I mean, it's fascinating because you grew up partly in the Bible Belt, but also here in Britain. I did, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, Southwest Wales, which is a slightly different beast than uh, than Manchester or London, for sure. <laughs> so tell me about it. So just tell me a bit about your uh, about your childhood, anything you want to, that you feel comfortable talking about. Sure. So I grew up in the uh, I grew up in this in the Midwest in uh, uh, the heartland, as it's known in, in the U.S. Uh, state of Oklahoma, which is a uh, very you know it it it's it's where you know Buffalo used to roam. It's where you see like wheat fields and stuff like on you know in your your sort of stereotypical uh, image of Oklahoma. Um, you know, it was indigenous lands that was occupied, and you know. Um, you know, uh, and basically like seized in uh, in the land grab of uh, of of the late 1800s. And uh, you know, I grew up there. I grew up in the middle of in the middle of nowhere, um, like about 30, 40 miles north of uh, Oklahoma City, which is the nearest uh, major city. Which is a pretty, you know, it's a pretty it it, it it's a pretty uh, it was a pretty it was a pretty interesting time uh, growing up then because you know the the oil. You know the the oil boom was over, and a lot of the industries had shut down. Uh, you know, so I, I sort of grew, was gr- growing up in this uh, sort of, you know, uh, grungy former 
husk of a, of a, of an industrial giant, um, you know, of a town, you know, of a former boom, boom town, which had mostly emptied out. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, you know, I grew up in this small town and everyone was where everybody knew everybody, um, you know, played, uh, you know, I played games, uh, on the computer. That was a, sort of my escape. Uh, I, I eventually got access to the internet. Um, and, uh, both my parents, uh, divorced in, uh, like mid 2000, um, while I was in, while, while I was still in school and my mother gained custody of me and, uh, she was British. Um, she's actually, you know, grew up in Wales, uh, and she wanted to move back to Wales. So, um, you know, she took me, um, and I lived in, uh, in Southwest Wales, in Southwest Wales, uh, in the small town of Haverford, Haverford West. I've been, I've been to Haverford West. Yeah. There's not much there either. <laughs> It's, it's, it's got, it's got, it's, own, it's, it's got, got a castle. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a castle, you know, it's got a, you know, it's got a, it's, it's it sort of got the, you know, the, the, the sort of fishing, the sort of fish feeding the fishing towns mm -hmm. vibe. Um, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a, a significant culture shock for me. So grow it, you know, sort of going from the deep south, you know, from sort of a mixture of the Midwest and the deep south, which Oklahoma is, it's sort of this weird um, combination of the two. And then, you know, being thrust into the middle of uh, the, um, you know, rural, former coal miner, you know, uh, very different vibe, you know, but very similar, you know, there's a lot of, you know, it was, it was a lot of similarities, uh, but there's a lot of similarities between, you know, Oklahoma and, uh, and Wales, to be honest. So behind you, you've got the trans rights flag. Um, oh yeah. I, 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 staple, I, a staple of my studio. It's, it's a great staple. Uh, yeah. To my shame. And I think discussed actually, I've failed to have some form of pride flag behind me. Um, Yet another example of my betrayals of LGBTQ people. But I mean, I suppose the cliche LGBTQ people were always asked is, when did you know? And I suppose rather than asking that, I mean, for me, it's when yeah. I found David Duchovny in the X-Files. But when did you, I suppose, when did you know you were different? That's that's something I think all LGBTQ people can think of because we don't often have a label, do yeah. we? We don't have a term for it, but we know. Exactly. And you, 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 you got the words right out of me. It was like, I... You know, I always knew I was different and everybody, and the funny thing is everybody around me knew I was different too. Like my parents knew, um, you know, the other kids at school knew, uh, and they would remind me constantly, you know, so I was definitely, I was definitely very, I was definitely very effeminate. I was definitely very, um, you know, you know, and, and uh, as a teenager, I started to become, you know, attracted. I, I, I started to become more attracted to guys, even though, you know, I still had a little bit of an inkling of, of attraction to, to, to girls. Um, you know, like, uh, none of this nuance, it's complexity was anything that I could fathom, you know, uh, and, you know, I didn't have any, I didn't really understand what was going on. It took me a long time to figure all this stuff out. You know, a lot of Googling, a lot of, a lot of spending time on internet chats, a lot of, you know, uh, and, you know, I grew up on the internet. So, um, you know, like that, I think that that was part of, you know, having access to the internet as well as this broader worldwide community that was starting to grow in the mid 2000s um, and start to connect with each other um, was, I think, an important part of sort of my awareness of who I am, where I come from, 
And, uh, and that continues to this day, you know, I'm still learning a lot of things about myself, you know, whenever it comes to this stuff, you know, and I've been, uh, I've been learning more about sort of like the, the, the gender spectrum and where I fit on it, you know, cause I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't really fit, you know, in any particular spots, you know, so I use, I use both she and they pronouns, uh, you know, I, you know, I would say I'm trans, I'm sort of trans feminine as opposed to just like, you know, like I am, I am, sh I am a she, her absolute female, you know, I, I, I sort of am learning to roll with the complexity of my own, you know, sexual and gender identity. I mean, in terms of your love of computing, I mean, I wonder about this because I know uh, what... it's, it's more complicated than that. I, 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 I often have to remind people that I, I spend most of my time yelling at computers because uh, <laughs> they're not doing what I want them to do. And, uh... I mean, they tend not to. Mine I mean, look, I ended up with, I inherited my, my father's uh, inability. I mean, he could barely use remote control. But mm -hmm. my mum's, you know, she's AI academic. My, my brothers both are in computing. But I was wondering, a lot of LGBTQ people, despite the, pop, the, the annoyance and irritation computers can use, what do you think your interest in it, it partly sprang out of it because it, it can be the internet, a lifeline for young queer people, particularly if you're, if you're growing up in an area, which is very socially conservative, where you feel quite isolated. Do you think that was part of it? Absolutely. I mean, I not, you know, none of this awareness, none of this understanding, you know, cause I, I didn't grow up in, I, I didn't grow up in London. I didn't grow up in New York city. I didn't grow up in, I grew up, I grew up, you know, in, you know, despite, you know, this internet, I was always in sort of this international rural, you know, space, uh, which was, high, you know, very disconnected, you know, uh, but the internet was there and I could play and, you know, and I could play games and I could chat with people and I could experiment and I could learn things. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very significant aspect of, you know, my, my sort of, uh, growth and awakening, uh, and my consciousness. Um, you know, uh, both, you know, both as an, both as a, as an individual, but also as like a part of a broader community and a, and a longer history. So in terms of how you ended up in the army, I mean, cause I can't think, I'm trying to think of something in my head I'd associate with just surrounded by, you know, very, you know, full of machismo and yeah. I mean, what, how did you end up in the army and what was it like? as someone who is a trans woman, obviously not out at the time. Yeah, what, yeah. What, how did you end up there and what, you know, what was the experience for you in, in, because of that? Yeah. So it's, it's pretty, um, the experience is mostly down to I, a lot of pressure, a lot of, peer pressure, a lot of societal pressure to conform, you know, with this sort of, sort of, you know, uh, I worked, I worked at Starbucks, you know, at the time I was working 90, 90 hours a week. Um, I had just spent, you know, like a year or so homeless. Um, and, uh, you know, and I was living with my aunt and my, I, I had, I had a falling out with my father. Uh, yeah, we were re trying to reconnect. And, you know, one of the things that he kept on harping on was, you know, enlist in the military, enlist in the military, enlist in the military. He always wanted me in the Navy, but, you know, uh, 
you know, I, I didn't go with the, I didn't go with the Navy <laughs> just, just to spite him, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, but I, uh, you know, there was a lot of factors, you know, it was a very, it was a very complex decision. Um, I needed, I, I, I obviously wanted to go to college. Um, and the, in the United States, you gotta, you gotta like pay. So you gotta figure out how you're going to pay for it. Um, you know, the military, uh, at least offers you the promise of being able to, to pay for college. Um, and a lot of, um, you know, and there was sort of this internal, so I was like in, in this internal struggle and, you know, all these like indicators of like, Hey, you know, there's this thing you can enlist in the military. And then also the Iraq war was going on, you know, and while I wasn't, you know, I wasn't very politically conscious, you know, I like understood that like, Oh, okay. There's a war going on. Um, you know, but I was, there was this constant like recruit, you know, like offers for recruitment, all these bonuses and stuff. And, you know, and that was for somebody working at Starbucks, you know, um, and, and other side jobs, you know, that was a, that was a, an extremely attractive thing it was like, okay, here's a stable career. Here's housing. Here's, here's benefits. Like these are the things that I wanted, you know, it was mm -hmm. like healthcare benefits, um, you know, t you know, tuitions, assistance, things like that. Um, and you know, th those, those are the prime motive. Th those are sort of the prime motivators on that end. And then there was sort of the identity stuff. Like, you know, like my father was in the, was in the army. My grandfather was, was, or my father was in the Navy. My grandfather was in the army. Um, you know, uh, sort of family tradition was a, was an aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, you know, this, like, you need to man up, you need to be, you need to be the, the, you need to be the child that I always wanted you to be sort of, you know, and also, you know, a lot of fear and anxiety, you know, cause I had, I had spent uh, some, uh, a significant amount of time, you know, sort of roaming around, um, you know, wondering how, whether, whether or not I was going to be able to make enough money to eat. I mean, in terms of your experience there in Iraq, mm -hmm. how much do you think the ability of the US to wage war abroad depends on being able to airbrush the reality away to, to, in terms of to get at least acquiescence from the public, because often it doesn't need active support, just passive acquiescence. Right. Because people can't see the reality, it's kept away. I mean, in the Vietnam War, one of the big things that eroded public acquiescence and consent was when people started to see some of the absolute horrors uh the photographers and journalists you know some horrific photos were, were shown I mean, exactly. and, and and since then you know the military have managed to manage it you embed they embed journalists in the military and, and 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 have come up with very clever ways and often a very compliant media let's be honest so yeah how important do you think it is from your experiences to hide the reality to ensure that acquiescence yeah, it's, I mean, it's pivotal, you know, the uh, hiding, and it just doesn't, and it doesn't just go for the military, you know, like, uh, um, you know, in ma managing and controlling the sort of broader narrative is, is I think, extremely important. Um, also, for those who are critical of it, or who may have questions about it, you know, sort of doubt, you know, sort of dismissing or making it difficult, you know, to feel like you have any say or have any power over as, as I think another aspect of it. Um, and that's, and, and like I said, like that doesn't just go for the military. I mean, we're, we're starting to see in the U S where the mil with the domestic militarization sort of coming, coming to a full, you know, you know, coming to a full circle where you have, you know, the Portland, 
where you have the the Portland Police Bureau in in Oregon, where they're they're essentially like, yeah, actually, we're you know the only the only journalists who are allowed on the streets are the ones that we authorize who are actually embedded, which is a copy paste, you know, um, technique from the military, um, you know. So, yeah, controlling the narrative uh, in in these very sophisticated, you know, complex. Uh, you know, asymmetric environments, asymmetric media environments, as well as asymmetric sort of, you know, uh, conflict environments, you know, is, is, is pivotal, you know? Uh, and yet, like you said, it's not just, it's not just consent, you know, it's also, um, not doing anything. Like it's, it's, it's feeling powerless. It's feeling not educated enough. It's feeling not, it, you know, like a lot of people want to, you know, one of the things that I've, that I find frustrating about um, the talking heads on television often is that they're often saying nonsense, mm-hmm. but the, to a, the average viewer doesn't know that. So it sounds like they're talking over, over people's heads and they are, but they're also just not talking about anything at all. It's sort of just a distraction. It's like an entertainer. It's like an I- entertainment. People understand the un- entertainment element of say cable news in America, but they don't, you know, there's no real substance to what, you know, people are actually discussing. Um, you know, there are people in the world who who stand up for what they believe in and then may face consequences. Maybe they sure. get yelled at a bit on Twitter and then in some cases claim to be cancelled as a consequence. Or, you know, maybe, maybe worse. Maybe they'll be yelled at in the street. Maybe their jobs will be threatened and all the rest of it. Sure. What you went through, having stood up for what you believe was the self-evidently the right thing to do was to be placed in a cage in solitary confinement imprisoned for years these are experiences most people just would never be able to understand or comprehend i mean just the very just being in solitary confinement which goes against everything it is to be a human being i mean that's the purpose how how would you begin to explain what it was like day after day not knowing what your fate would be, not knowing what each day would bring. How would you even begin to articulate that to someone who the vast majority of us would never, ever endure such a horror? Yeah, I, I, frankly, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Um, you know, it's experience that uh, going through it, you know, feels routine, you know, there's a lot of routine involved. Um, you know, it feels, uh, I feel quite numb, you know? Uh, and I think it's one of the things that it does to you is it just makes you so numb to that experience. Um, and I, I'm actually writing a book, you know, I've been, I've been in the process of finishing up, uh, um, a manuscript, um, for my book. And, uh, when we, when we came to this part, you know, I just, I struggled a lot to try to figure out how, how to talk about this, how to write about this. And, you know, and I'm still, you know, I'm in, I'm in a lot of therapy because it's, it, it does things, it does things to your understanding of the world that, you know, you subjectively can't describe because you're, you're the one experiencing it. So I think that it's often, uh, I, I often leave it to some of the other experts to like describe what's going on because the, the actual experience is quite boring. You know, it's, it's just a, it just you find ways to cope. And what I, th- and I think one of the ways in which, you know, I've been able to cope with, um, with this experience is, is by, 
um, sort of putting it into a box and saying, this is a thing that happened that, you know, I'm not going to open or dig into, uh, you know, emotionally. So I think that, I think that's one of the things that, that I've, I've, I've been sort of struggling with is, is sort of processing that, you know, um, cause I don't even know how to describe it, describe it to myself. I mean, were, were there ever moments when you thought this is the rest of my life? I will never, ever, I will sure. never be free. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 you know, after, after I'd say two, three years of this process, you know, of like being going through a lengthy court martial and, you know, being in prison for a while, you know, I sort of just adjusted to the fact, you know, like, okay, like, this is my life now. Like, I'm going to be, you know, um, it's, it's sort of what I, what I would think it's, it's what I believe is the sort of moment where you're, you realize you're, you're quite institutionalized, you know, is whenever you're sort of more comfortable in the prison environment than you are in the outside world. So, um, you know, and this is, this is really common, you know, it's not, it's not something that's specific to me. Like, you know, a lot of people go through this process and go through this experience. And, you know, like, uh, if you're, if, if you're, if you're encountering somebody who's been incarcerated for a significant chunk of time, you know, it just, it just, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't, just doesn't phase you as much, you know, uh, as if you had done it, you know, if, as if you'd never done it before. So you just, you become very accustomed to it. And yeah, you know. You know, I started, I, I was, I was very accepting of the fact like, oh, okay, like this is my reality now. Um, I'm going to figure out ways of improving my quality of life. Um, and one of those ways was, you know, like, Hey, I need gender affirming treatment and this is a fight that I need to fight, um, you know, to improve my, my daily quality of life, you know, my day-to-day -day experience, um, needed to be improved. And I fought to do that. Before I ask you about the wider political questions, tell me a bit about that struggle, that struggle to get that gender affirming surgery, the sure. the struggle as and, 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 and also what it means generally, kind of, you know, broaden it out, but but for you as a trans woman in those circumstances at the time, tell me about that struggle, the resistance you fought you faced, and the impact of that resistance from those with, with power. Sure. Um, well, first, I first I needed to get, you know, my name change. Uh, I needed to like, come out, have people acknowledge me for who I am, accept that, understand that, you know, there's obviously a pretty controversial, you know, it was pretty controversial for me, even just, you know, saying like, hey, like, my name's Chelsea, I use she, her pronouns. That was, you know, uh, that was, that was a, its own process, um, getting a legal name change, uh, especially in Kansas, cause I was in prison in Kansas at the time. That was its own process, uh, cost a load of, cost a load of money to do that too. Um, not just for lawyers, but, you know, to, to get like an ad in the newspaper to, for notice and things like that. Um, you know, uh, I worked with, with the ACLU, um, uh, on a, a civil case uh, against the military in order for them to um, at least provide the basic um, services, you know, the basic like hormones and uh, medical treatment, you know, things uh, to get right, you know, and, and even to get basic recognition, like having my name change be recognized by the military, like all these different fights were going on, you know, uh, and, uh, and they were built on, you know, years of, of previous court litigation and things. So, you know, it wasn't, wasn't an isolated thing, but, um, uh, you know, it, it was, it was extremely hard. It was extremely exhausting, you know, and, um, and we were gaining traction and gaining ground. And, 
Um, you know, uh, I, you know, and I never got to the point where, you know, uh, it was like, we're done, we're over, like, we've, we've succeeded either, you know, like, uh, before, before I got, com you know, I had my sentence commuted in 2017, um, by President Obama. And, uh, and then I was released in May of 2017. And, uh, and that just was, that just turned into it, it just the, the struggle moved, because then I needed to, to get insurance set up, I needed to get new doctor's letters, I needed to go through an entirely new process, um, you know, as a, as a civilian, in order to to gain in order to gain access to you know surgery and you know to in order to continue the hormone treatments and stuff so you know like the battle continued and you know and yeah you know like uh i i think they're i think uh i think i think folks don't really understand that in the u.s um folks outside the u.s don't really understand that like you we have to bend over backwards to try to get insurance to pay for mm -hmm. what essentially is i think you know, for me, I think, I think if, if I would have paid out of pocket, you know, for, for, um, surgery, it would have probably, it probably would have cost me like $90,000 or something like that with, with, with everything in travel, food expenses, like that, all that stuff. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, and luckily, you know, I managed to, um, to get my, the insurance company to front the bill on the vast majority of that, except for the, this deductible, you know, the, the $2,000 deductible. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's not just a struggle in terms of prison mm -hmm. for healthcare, but it was also a struggle being in the United States trying to get healthcare, which is one of the reasons why I hyper harp on, you know, universal healthcare so much. I mean, if, if we talk about that, that broader assault on trans rights, and we've seen, we've seen the Republican right with the so-called bathroom bills. We saw, yeah. Uh, Donald Trump in terms of the ban on trans people being able to serve in the military. And also, if we look here in Britain, it's not just right-wing newspapers. There are those who call themselves liberals or progressives right? who have also been part of an assault on trans people and trans rights in often a very vicious, very obsessive way. Right. How do we understand? How do we understand what's driving this campaign? It's a global offensive. And... How can it be fought against? And where do cisgender people? Where what can they do as allies? Yeah, um, you know, it's 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 tough. It's it's tough to to describe what's going on. It's tough to understand what's going on. Um, you know, uh, transphobia is real. You know, and it exists. You know, in the same way that you know racism is real and it exists. And you don't have it doesn't racism and transphobia and xenophobia do not have uh an you know they while they lean while, while while these things certainly can be held more frequently and more vocally by conservatives they are very complex you know things that um can seep into any politics you know so fighting against that is i think uh, is i think a long-term struggle that doesn't that doesn't necessarily come from a simple simple political, you know, uh, analysis, you know, I think, you know, I've certainly encountered people who, um, who are very, you know, uh, left wing in the U S or in, or in Europe who, you know, have difficulty with trans issues. So, you know, and it's not just a matter of like educating people or like acknowledging that, you know, people exist. I think, I think there's some real, long-term groundwork that needs to be made in terms of people 
really, you know, analyzing like, where is this coming from? You know, and I don't think that's trans. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think trans people need to prove our worthiness to the world in the same way that, you know, a black person in America doesn't need to prove their, uh, their worthiness to the world in order to be acknowledged um, in order to, in order to help people along with that process. Like it's, you know, there's a lot of work that I think cis- cisgender people are going to have to do um, or, you know, uh, you know, people, people, you know, in the, you know, people who aren't, uh, you know, people who may, may have uh, sort of uh, racist thoughts or, uh, you know, xenophobic thoughts or Islamophobic thoughts are going to have to like really analyze and really examine, you know, and that, that takes work and, you know, it's easier not to work through those things. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I mean, in Britain, as an example, transphobic hate crimes quadrupled in the last half decade or so. Right. And... The polling suggests, the research suggests that up to half of young people have had, have have considered taking their own lives actively, that they face huge discrimination and prejudice within the workplace, uh, attacks by workmates and customers uh, in face-to-face service sector jobs, harassed in the street, and at the same time, quite a relentless campaign from the media. And it can feel, often for younger trans people who haven't come out, Right. It can feel the loneliest feeling in the world. Feels, you know, they're they're worried that they won't be accepted by their friends, their family, by society as a whole. What would you say to a young trans person in this atmosphere that's been whipped up, who who just wants a bit of a bit of hope almost? What would you what would you say to young younger trans people? Uh, I would say, you know, it, it one, your feelings are valid. Um, you know, I certainly feel those things all the time, constantly, um, you know, and not just, not, not, not just like in the world, but, you know, like in, in, in you know, small in smaller and safer spaces too, it, you know, trans, you know, the, the, the trans experience can be difficult. Um, and, you know, uh, that, you know, it's, it's not as simple as, as like, oh, it gets better. Cause you know, like that, that, you know, that's not necessarily the case either. You know, I think that the fact that you're not alone and that, you know, all of these things are survivable, um, you know, and and it's okay if you're if you're struggling. Like you know, the the struggle is real, and you know, we you have a wider, larger community 
you know, out out here, um, and we're waiting for y'all, uh, and we're fighting for y'all. But you know, like it's it's it, it you know it is difficult. Like it's not there's no there's no easy there's no easy fix or solution to this stuff. And you know and you know I, you know hang in hang in there and just you know and just realize like I I was feeling these feelings too at the at, you know and I didn't have anybody to reach out to. I didn't have anybody. You know, I, I had no idea what was going on. Not even, not, not a clue. So, you know, and I'm, I'm super proud and I am always inspired by a lot of the, a lot of my, my Zoomer, my Zoomer trans peers, um, and my, uh, my, uh, the, like the, the, the younger folk, I mean, the younger folks, you know, I, I definitely feel like, you know, uh, have a huge advantage in terms of like identifying all the stuff way earlier than, you know, than even I had to uh, just 10, 15 years ago. I think that would mean a huge amount to a lot of younger trans people often at a very difficult time. Um, over the last few years, we've seen, so over the last year, really, we've seen this explosion of various struggles. One is uh, on the struggle to tackle the existential threat of a climate emergency. Mm-hmm. And the other, of course, most notably is Black Lives Matter. Yep. To what extent do you think these movements will be lasting, that there'll be this, you know, a catalyst for... Uh, for change that's 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 a lasting movement or you know they're some of their critics or skeptics or cynics will say this is a flash in the pan it's a passing moment uh, and their last you know there won't be that lasting impact so what what do you think what do you think the the legacy of the mobilizations across the united states obviously after the killing of george floyd uh, by the police but also these other movements how significant are they mobilizing and politicizing people uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so these 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 movements are not isolated. They're not discrete chapters, and you know, there's there's not a beginning and there's not an end. You know, um, you know, like there there's definitely a, a been a long struggle for uh, environmental, you know, justice. There's been a long struggle, um, you know, and there's a there's there's sort of an overlap between envi- between the environmental struggle and you know the rights of indigenous people in Canada, like First Nations in Canada. Um, indigenous folks in the U.S. You know, we we saw this in you know with the um, uh, with the pipeline uh, with, with with the various pipeline efforts and struggles. Um, you know, and uh, you know, so and whenever it comes to like you know Black Lives Matter, obviously long history and struggle there. You know, almost seeping into the entire history of the United States. It's been a constant. You know, it, it the, the, these are just these are not flashes in the pan. There are bigger systemic drivers happening here it none of this stuff is going away it's definitely you know it's definitely gaining you know these all of these movements which are connected they're joined at the hip uh i think you know in terms of like the systemic drivers that are behind it and you know um and it's mostly because like there's this you know uh and you know it gets in this whole idea of like intersectionality of like where you have all these different people who have all these different overlapping identities and uh, all these overlapping interests um who are you know finally coming together uh and and fighting side by side you know and and struggling with each other and you know and and sharing our common ground uh with each other while also facing a while also facing common enemies because you know you'll find that uh somebody who is uh, an undocumented person in the United States has a lot of common ground with, say, a, uh, a with, say, a trans person living in, you know, living in uh, living in Maine, far from the border. You know, you, the 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 
the the fights for legal rights and legal rec- recognition and you know protections and identity and documentation are you know they're they, they may be different but you're facing the same issues with the same sort of mindset and the same sort of struggle and the same uh, it's the same institutions of power that you're up against so binding together and ban- banding together you know as a as a wider group is is what's happening and you know i think it's extremely powerful and uh and we as individuals are a part of that you know mm-hmm. we you know like we're a part of this bigger thing and you know when we both as individuals and as a collective group start to recognize that we have our own inherent you know ability to invoke our rights and invoke our power and invoke our political identity and 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 not just ask for things, but to assert them in a very real and meaningful way, which is, I think, what's happening. You know, I think people pe- people are, no, you know, they're not asking for, you know, people aren't asking in the U.S., like politically, people aren't asking for, for, for the government to stop killing, you know, uh, black people anymore. Like they're, they're just, they're just saying, if you, if you don't stop, th- these are the consequences you're going to face. Donald Trump, I mean, do you think there was this phenomenon where a lot of the so-called, well, kind of establishment, I suppose, critics of Donald Trump, the more, the kind of, I don't just mean the so-called never-Trumpers in the Republican Party, but even some of the kind of establishment Democrats, that their critique of Donald Trump often wasn't about the substance, it was it was more superficial than that. It was seen yep. as vulgarity, it was, he was demeaning his office, he was unpresidential, that kind of thing, you know, silly tirades on Twitter rather than the substance, the fact that, you know, deregulation, cutting taxes on the rich, drone strikes, which certainly didn't start with Donald Trump. He escalated them, but they were pre-existing. I mean, do you think there was that phenomenon that lots, there was a, a wing of Trump's opponents who were basically, it wasn't the substance of Trumpism they had a big problem with. It was the front man. Yeah, you've, you've hit it right on the right on the head, you know. Uh... Their, all of their problems were about the aesthetics of a Trump presidency and not the substance of it. You know, the 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 GOP and significant member, you know, significant numbers of of moderate Democrats want to support these things. They just don't like how he did it. You know, uh, and I think it's important to recognize that you know, like this is not going away. You know, he he's a brand and an identity, but you know the his 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 capture of the base of the republican party uh was unmatched nobody's ever done any no nobody's had them this unified before for this for this long of time and through this many things there is you know donald trump was not an aberration he was the and still is the eventual it's the eventuality the the inevitability of what this you know of of what these institutions and what these groups of people you know are going to get you know and it's and it's not going to go away like you know even even if he even if he leaves the presidency um you know however that however that happens in the next you know 2 months um or 2 and a half months like i 
you know, the, 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 the drivers that led to him, led to his rise are still there. The people Mm -hmm. who back him are still there. And these move, you know, these movements and these, uh, these things, they're still there, you know, so they're not going to, going to, going to go away. And yeah. And, you know, the establishment, obviously the, the Republican established fully embraced this stuff. You know, they, they embraced the substance, but not the style. They just didn't like the style. I mean, before I ask you about Trumpism and 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 just a bit more about about you know how much it will outlast Trump and so on, um, a lot of the world at the moment are kind of almost ridiculing. It's a it's a source of mockery. Donald Trump's refusal to accept that he has lost the presidency. How much more serious is it? Is there a genuine attempted coup taking place in the United States? And what are the consequences? Could there be these mass mobilizations of his base? America clearly is a heavily armed nation. The prospects of political violence, given how many guns there are, can never be discounted. Is that a serious fear? Or do you think this will simply end with a whimper, Donald Trump will just leave the presidency, the end? Yeah, I think I think we're at a crossroads when it comes to that. I think that, uh, I think that you know, the likelihood of there being a a full-blown open coup is i think um relatively small but you know the appearance of and the riling up of his base as as, you know uh as you know the um sort of militias and and things like that is is i think real too um i just you know i i'm it's unclear at this stage how serious the threat is um, because of the mixed met messages, because you, while well, you may have Mike Pompeo go and say, oh yeah, we're transitioning to a second term, uh, you know, to a second Trump term, uh, you know, it, it, it's difficult to know what the institutions themselves are going to recognize and what they're going to do. What I do think is very likely is that the, is that these, um, friv- you know, these quite frankly, frivolous, you know, suits um, aren't going to go anywhere. Um, they're they're going to they're obviously going to make their way through the courts. I don't think I don't think even even this this supreme even this supreme court I don't think is going to take any of this stuff seriously and and weigh down uh, and, and weigh in his direction. But I do think there's going to be a move to get the the GOP legislatures to change you know the elect to change the electors and then spark another battle, which you know that. That I think is the last gasp of uh, of a of a soft style coup in the U.S. is is you know fiddling with the electors because you know the U.S. actually the U.S. election is actually elector based you know while we have a popular election you know and a general election in November um, what what happens is that you know all of the states that they tally up their numbers and they send and they submit these electors and you know there's a lot of discussion about absent. Uh, electors or faithless electors, and there's a number of things that can happen with this process that can muddle that up, um, and that may that that may end up being the um, the last attempt at a sort of legal de jure, um, you know, uh, soft coup in the United States, um, which would un, you know which would obviously you know m- essentially mean that the democratic process. Uh, was ignored in favor of the state uh, of the state legislature's mm-hmm. um, ability to, you know, appoint and uh, and send electors into this pro- and, and 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 change and essentially change the well, 
change it from the will of the people to, um, or the will of a majority of voters in their their respective states to this uh, more complex process, which you know is built, which is built into the constitution. You know, is is there a chance of this happening? I mean, it's 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 much higher than uh, than a full blown like you know troops in the streets kind of coup that I think a, a lot of a lot of people have sort of have as an image in their minds. Um, there there is sort of uh, a less of a chance of that, I think, than than a, than a, a very serious attempt. I do think it's serious, but I also think it's 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 a hail mary pass uh, mm. to use a, a British or to use an American expression from from American football is sort of this last ditch attempt um, at doing something um, that's kind of hit or miss. You know, it's like mm. throwing a three point shot right before the buzzer. You know, I can only think of sports analogies right now. I, say, I need to start Googling after this American football rules as a matter of yeah. urgency. That's one of the, just add that to the to-do list. What if Donald Trump just refuses to leave the White House? So there's a number of things that would happen, um, that I think would happen. Uh, first off is uh, it's, it would come down to the results of the, um, of of the the legal battles uh over the electors um and i think that one of the things that that's going to that it's going to come down to and it may come down to the wire essentially um where it's the joint chiefs of staff and it's the secret service and there are protocols for this somebody along the lines thought about what would happen in this exact scenario a long time ago and wrote it down and there are protocols in play. The military has a plan. The Secret Service has a plan. What if a president refuses to leave office? What if a president makes makes disputed claims? Um, in the event of a nuclear attack, for instance, um, you know, during the dur- during the 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 Cold War, um, they played out various scenarios where there would be multiple people who made multiple claims if there was a de- decapitation attack that successfully took out a significant amount of the government. Um, those procedures exist, and they will take they 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 will come into play. I don't think that Donald Trump. Um, w- I, I do not believe that if Donald Trump attempts to stay in office, he will remain in that office for very long. Uh, I don't think he will be remain in the White House for very long. Um, there are procedures in play. There are uh, tools that these institutions have. This stuff has been drilled before. Um, they're obviously dusting off the, the, the binders for what, what to do in this situation. But when it comes to the chain of command and maintaining the chain of command and who has the the button, the nuclear button, um, the military and the Secret Service are not going to play around. Before I ask questions, which are a bit more critical of the Democrats, what, what, how much breathing space is bought for progressives, for minorities, by Trump losing the presidency? Uh, not a lot. Uh, unfortunately, you know, um, um, the incoming, the president-elect, um, Joe Biden, has made it pretty clear that he's not willing to, you know, uh, well, while his, while, while it is certainly a progressive agenda in, in terms of what the Democratic Party has brought to fore before, um, like in the Obama administration, 
you know, in terms of what people are asking for and what's popular in the Democratic base or and even the 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 not, you know, like the the center left of the Democratic Party um, is it's it just it's non-existent. There's no you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of empty talk. You know, it's a lot of, you know, I mean, Joe Biden has already got sort of the reputation as the mourner in chief because, you know, he he's he talks about how we need to take, you know, um, uh, the COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic seriously um, and not really not really any, anything to just, you know, to, to address the things like the fact that millions of people don't have health insurance and millions of people are because they don't have jobs right now. They can't they have zero access to health insurance. You know, I, I have I know of several people who right now. Um, don't have any insurance plans whatsoever. Like, you know, they're like, he's, he's defending the system, you know, the, the, you know, cause like the affordable care act assumes that you have, that your employer is providing you this stuff. Otherwise you're not getting, uh, otherwise you're not getting health insurance and, you know, people, people are getting sick and they're, they're getting sick for things that are not, that are not COVID related. And the hospitals are, are clogged up because of COVID, because of the amount of COVID cases that we have and the insurance isn't covering that. So like we have a failing healthcare system we have a feeling, you know, you know, people are being, people are losing, you know, and even despite, you know, um, you know, calls for uh, moratoriums and stuff, people are still being evicted from their homes. People are still being, you know, made homeless. So the two issues that I, that, that the, that progressives harp on the most, you know, beyond just, um, you know, things like, like uh, police violence and things, housing and healthcare, the two staples are not being addressed and they're not going to be addressed. And there, there, there's no legislative agenda or proposals that really gets to the heart of these things. Now then there are some, you know, sort of band-aids and fixes that have been proposed, but like, I just don't see the substance there. And I think, I think it's actually, it actually uh, a, a Biden, a Biden victory is essentially taking a lot of wind out of the sails that, out of the uh, more progressive elements of, of the, of, of the party, despite the popularity and despite the popularity of, you know, of many, um, uh, progressive and, 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 and more left-leaning, you know, uh, uh, politicians in, in the U S right now, you know, um, and it's not just, it's not just like the, the, the sort of, uh, it becoming increasingly cliche, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad, but more, but more broadly, you know, um, you know, at, at the state level and at the city level, we're seeing more and more progressive candidates, you know, who are, who are coming up, you know, and I think I think that you know while the Democratic Party may be may may, may be having its its uh, the progressive elements of the Democratic Party may be having uh, the wind pulled out of their sails a little bit um, or taken out of their sails a little bit. I think that um, I think that there's still a movement. And there's still a lot of building to go, and 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 you see that that's what that that's what a lot of more prog pro progressive people are are already starting to pick up on is like okay, we need to keep going because. We're not going, you know, we, we can't do what we did in 2008 uh, or after 2008 and just assume that we, okay, we have a new president now, things are going to get better because, you know, they, they tried to water for years, you know, with, a, with their progressive agenda. I mean, do you think that that's a real danger? I mean, David Sorotha, who worked as Bernie Sanders' uh, speechwriter, he says, he talks about the kind of liberal, the brunch liberals and what he meant, he's referring to this. Uh, sign, uh, I think it was from a woman's, the Women's March in 2017, just after Donald Trump's inauguration. I remember I was there that day in Washington. And uh, and the sign said, if Clinton had been elected, we'd be at brunch. And it was almost this sense that 
you know, that they would just passively, you know, in terms of their political engagement, it was just passively vote for a Democratic candidate, and that was sufficient. Uh, and everyone could just go back to brunch uh, rather than mobilizing from below for change. And do you think, is that a danger now? You get a Democratic presidency and that tendency of people, the brunch liberal go, well, job done. There is no longer any need to mobilize. All these problems have been solved, even when many of the same injustices continue and accelerate. Uh, I don't, I'm not as concerned about that anymore. Um, You know, and I say that, you know, I'm going to take things, you know, a little bit back because like, you know, what happened in 2009 was very, it was a very different time. It was a very different situation. You had the, the 2008, you know, uh, you had the 2007, 2008, you know, housing market, you know, housing market crash and the financial, the financial crisis from that. The economic devastation in the U S shrinking GDP, um, the economic devastation affecting the average person right now, you know, a $1,200, you know, stimulus check, you know, to every, to every person, not good enough of a fix to really, really get through the, the fundamental problems. This is very different. There is a rapidly, you know, on both sides of the political spectrum, there is a rapidly uh, growing radical element in the U.S., uh, there are fat, you know, there, there is a huge number of people who are getting involved in politics who were not involved in politics even a year ago. Um, COVID and the, the financial devastation of our economy here, uh, in the impact and in, in with, with, with not containing the spread and not, you know, sort of addressing any of the fundamental things like housing, healthcare and whatnot has fundamentally wrecked um, the illusion of being able to go back to brunch. Um, you may still hear some of this rhetoric from, you know, the cliche blue check marks on Twitter, but the average person on the street is a very different, you know, is in a very different place than they were where they could just be, where they could just watch football and, uh, you know, watch television and be distracted. The ability, the, the idea that people can be distracted from the day-to-day reality that they're facing is just non-existent. There's a huge number of people who, you know, I, this summer, I've never been to protests and seen this many faces, this many new faces in my entire life. You know, and I've, I, I've been to a lot of protests. I've been to a lot of gather. I, I've been to a lot of ga- political gatherings. I've never seen this many people who have been activated this year. Um, that is not going to go away. Uh, that is, you know, the, the stereotypical brunch, uh, let's go back to brunch liberals are far outnumbered. They may still have power. They may still have influence, but there is a real fundamental difference between then, between then and now. Before I ask you finally, just about progressives, the left and the U S and where next in terms of foreign policy, I mean, I think a whole generation of people, particularly in Europe, grew up thinking U.S. wars you associate with the Republicans, with George W. Bush in particular. But of course, in the 60s, Vietnam LBJ, 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 how many kids have you killed today? Exactly. President Johnson, the Democratic right. president. But also it was escalated initially by JFK, of course. And, yes. you know, Biden supported very passionately, vehemently the invasion of Iraq as, of course, did uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. 
I mean, what do you think, you know, if we think today, drone strikes, which Trump escalated, which have killed so many civilians, the support for uh, brutal dictatorships, Egypt, uh, uh, you know, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, the Israeli occupation of Palestine. How much do you think these injustices will continue? And also the prospect of further military action. I mean, some people who opposed Trump thought he wasn't hawkish enough. Yeah. Absolutely, um, and many many of those people uh, are, are 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 Democrats and uh, and never Trump or Republicans. So uh, you know, um, I think that I think that, and again, this comes to the systemic problems and the systemic drivers. Like, what is what is driving this? And the answer is, unfortunately, you know, the same you know the same things that we've been talking about, which is like the climate. You know, the climate crisis is a is a huge factor. You know, a lot of these wars. A lot of these wars are, are being driven by by underlying xenophobia and racism, and a lot of these things are being driven by you know the the sort of extraction you know the the amount of profit that you can get from the extraction of wealth from you know sort of these in this sort of neo colonial uh, you know wealth extraction through you know either war or uh, you know not not through territorial conquest but through you know arming you know uh, are arming a dictator who will make sure that you get your lithium uh, mined, uh, you know, um, for you, you know, and and so a lot. Uh, I think a lot of these foreign policy, you know, um, a lot of these things, particularly when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, things that are going are that that have happened, mm-hmm. um, they're going to continue, even though they're they may not be the United States anymore. I don't think the United States is in a position. I think we're. I think we are like like this is the United States is not the United the United States of 2020 is not the United States of 2003. It is just not like the the ability I think of the United States of the stomach to mm-hmm. engage in foreign interventions willy nilly is just it, it we we for, quite frankly don't have the um we, we don't have the 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 logistical capacity to undertake anything like that. Um, with so much happening internally, um, we're, I think a, what, what we're going to see in terms of, of foreign policies, we're going to see a shift away from military foreign policy to domestic foreign, you know, to like domestic military policy. And, you know, we're already starting to see that with, you know, the, uh, with, with um, the policing in the black, you know, against the Black Lives protesters, which is not Trump. You're seeing democratic governors. You're seeing democratic uh, mayors. You're seeing uh, democratically run, um, you know, center left, you know, progressive candidates who are harping down on mm-hmm. defending the police, uh, on, uh, on on militarized police, on cracking on dissent and things like that. Th- these are not going to go away under a Biden administration. These things are not going to go away. If anything, they're going to continue to increase because their drivers are not, uh, the drivers behind this are are much deeper and longer lasting than uh, the figureheads at the top. I mean, as well as that, I mean, because I, I mean, yeah, that, that point, the fact that there's far more domestic potential opposition to any of those wars and the fact that you, you're absolutely right, it's kind of militarization of attempt to police and and to crack down and oppress, not least BLM. But I mean, uh, you know, President Eisenhower, Republican president, of course, spoke of the military industrial complex. And what I just brought up 
do you know that meme on the internet? The worst person you know has made a good point. Uh, and when President Trump said, um, he's not saying the military's in love with me, but the soldiers are, the top people in the Pentagon probably aren't because they want to do nothing but fight war. So that all of these wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy, but we're getting out of the endless wars, you know, uh, how we're doing. And of course, as I've said, Donald Trump escalated the drone strikes, which have killed so many innocent civilians, which have been almost entirely ignored by the so-called moderate opposition to Donald Trump. But is that the danger? Despite the groundswell of support, there is this strong, you know, Donald Trump being honest and candid about its existence, but a so-called, you know, military industrial complex, as Eisenhower called it, that is pushing for these foreign wars. The problem is, is that the, the military industrial complex is pushing for essentially the domestic conflicts. They want they want to see domestic conflict in the United like the military industrial complex wants to see a much more divided and uh you know domestically uh you know like they they want to see a domestic conflict in the United States because it's profitable. They can make a ton of money off of that, off of the idea you know, even just the idea that maybe there's the possibility of a domestic conflict in the United States is is a is in is a is a huge driver to like uh, funding you know prisons, uh, funding you know uh, defense contractors, you know that that can transition into sort of private police forces, um, you know uh, the manufacture of drone, you know of like surveillance drones. Um, I, I I think I think what we're seeing is that we're we're sort of seeing the industrial complex that was. That was very focused domestic. Uh, um, I think that what we're seeing is we're seeing that the uh, military industrial complex, which was very interested in uh, externalizing, bringing foreign wars, uh, would love to see internal conflict because you know they can make a lot of more money and they can they can make it from states and cities and not just the federal government anymore. So I think that, that I think that's a driver and a factor that I, I I don't I frankly don't see get discussed a lot. Um, since the election, a lot of the the so-called democratic moderates, the democratic establishment, whatever you want to call them, have been punching left. They've blamed uh, disappointing results in the House of Representatives on uh, the green, the struggle for a Green New Deal, on Black Lives Matter, on the so-called squad uh, of progressive uh, members of the House of Representatives, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilan Omar. What would you say to that narrative? What would you say in response to that narrative? Um, one, I mean, obviously it's not true. Um, the number of candidates who supported Medicare for all on the Democrat in the Democratic Party on the Democratic Party ticket who won their seats, like. They, every single one of them won their seats as, as far as I'm aware. Like I, I, I haven't verified those numbers, but um, I've been led to believe at least um, that it, it, it was either, it was either unanimous or, it, you know, pre, or, or extremely high, like in the 90% range. Um, the number of candidates who were in, who, who took these sort of lackluster centrist approaches, you know, they got, they got, they got nailed to a wall by, you know, by, by supporters of, of, of one of the, you know, by, by supporters of one of the, you know, uh, most despised, pre, you know, presidents in his, in modern history, you know, so you've got, you know, they need, you know, the problem is, is that they don't have an agenda and 
they don't want one either because you know it hurts their bottom line you know as long as the dnc money machine goes burr that you're going to keep seeing 60 million dollars getting thrown into a uh into a um moderate centrist campaign that's never going to win in Kentucky against Mitch McConnell, like like the Amy McGrath campaign, you're going to continue to see that from from Democrats. Demo- the Democratic Party doesn't want to win elections; they want donations to flow into these consulting companies and into the advertising companies because that is how the game is played. It's how it works. Um, the progressives on the left don't play that game at all. And one of the reasons why you saw such a, a significant ground campaign on the ground, a digital campaign for progressive candidates was because these startup little, you know, ad hoc groups that were doing the digital campaigning aren't involved in this DNC money machine that goes burr. I mean, the so-called squad, uh, which I just mentioned, most notably led by AOC, has expanded now. You've got right. new additions, including the first queer black man elected to Congress uh, over in New York. Uh, how significant is that? And what should be the strategy of the left going forward in the new Biden era? Yeah, uh, I want to be clear that, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is not the leader no, of sorry. this. I want, you know, like, I know, I know, I, you know, I, I remember, you know, I I I remember before um, before the twenty, you know, before before um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez won her seat in um, where I live now live in New York, um, you know, when when before that there was a progressive movement that was building, and mm-hmm. one of the one of the most powerful and most frankly inspiring things about the American progressive movement right now um, on the left um, is the immense diversification of it and the fact that people are just doing stuff you know uh you didn't see biden supporters out there passing out you know masks and um water and lawn chairs to um to people in long lines during early voting you saw progress you you saw like the you you saw the alexandria ocasio cortez type people activists, organizers, street people. You saw Black Lives Matter organizers doing this stuff. You saw, and that, and that was, you know, the, these, these people are, you know, they're not excited about Joe Biden. They're not excited. They weren't excited about the presidential election, but they, they were, they, they honestly, genuinely wanted people to show up in numbers and be heard whenever, you know, people don't want, people don't want to, you know, the, the little, the, one of the few, one of the last things that we have in our political system in the U.S., that this you know that appears democratic is the ability to vote once every two or three you know every two or four years, um, you know, and to have that one last vestige of that um, be threatened, I think you know galvanized a lot of uh, a lot of activists, and that's where the base is, that's where the support is, and that's that's where we're going to see a lot more movement and a lot more growth, exponential growth too, especially as this as the you know everybody's talking about you know the president uh the sort of presidential transition i have a feeling that this second wave that's hitting the us right now is going to dominate um, and the economic fallout of that and the 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 cost the human toll of the of what of what this is going to mean 
for the U.S. is going to really like pull a lot of a lot of this discussion back in that direction to where it was in March and April of uh, of 2010, or uh, not 2010, but of uh, 2020. Um, do you think these movements will be able to extract false concessions uh, out of the Democrats? Do you think that 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 you know that grassroots pressure against the will of the de- democratic establishment, of course? But do you think that that you know they'll be able to build sufficient pressure to to win those concessions? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think I th- I think that that power, you know, that power existed in two thousand eight. Believe it or not, there was an enormous amount of energy, was an enormous amount of power in 2008 going into 2009. Um, I, I, you know, I was around it and I and I saw it. Um, it's way bigger now. And what I think is different this time is that, you know, unlike unlike what Barack Obama was able to do, which was to be able to say, hey, I'm in office. Let's let's sit down and talk to the Republicans that is just getting shut down immediately by by progressives you know progressives aren't going hey wait a second let's listen let's hear them out let's hear this guy out they're not doing that this time around that is not happening that momentum is not going anywhere if anything it's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger and i want to be clear and uh, you know and i've been talking about this a lot with with folks on the left you know because like a lot of people feel feel helpless they feel dejected but i want to remind people that like the United States has gone through two huge red scares in the last hundred years. And the left, the progressive left going, going across the spectrum into, you know, the sort of, sort of more democratic socialist and socialist and, and, and so, and social democratic, uh, you know, uh, perspectives, um, has never been bigger than this before, perhaps in all of history. Perhaps in the entirety of U.S. history, it's never been this big. It's never been this powerful. It's never had this many candidates. It's never had this many people winning in, in, in seats. It's never had this 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 big, you know, the, the, these large of even proportionally compared to the size of the United States in, you know, the, the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century, the Gilded Age sort of moments. The left has never been this big before, I don't think. And I think it's important to remember that in perspective because, you know, uh, if if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ran for president um, in the same way that Eugene V. Debs ran for president in 1920, um, she would get a hell of a lot more than a million votes. So mm-hmm. that just, you know, like the, the, le- the American left has never perhaps, you know, even going back further than FDR, I, I would say, never been this strong before. Um, and, and what's so significant about it is I'm, I don't like generational politics. My understanding of politics is who has wealth and power and who does not. But undoubtedly, there is a generational divide without precedent because there's this myth that the young are you know, automatically progressive and then the university of life schools them and they become conservative and reactionary. But in 1968, the most pro-Vietnam War generation were the young and the most opposed were the, were the older generation in the mid 80s the most pro-reagan demographic in america were the young but right. this time around young people in britain and the united states are pr- partly because of their economic conditions married to their social progressive social values those two things economic insecurity and and socially progressive values have come together but that's what's changed isn't it the fact you have so many younger americans who are committed to a progressive worldview 
Uh, I think and I think that it's important to remember that a lot of them have never experienced the United States of pre uh, of pre 9-11. You know, uh, I think that that I think that what's happening here, the one of the reasons why there is this generational thing is that I, a lot of folks, myself included, remember the 1990s, you know, which was if you lived in America at the time was pretty good. You know, like, yeah, there was obviously if. For if you're white middle class, obviously, which I, which I which which I was, I was I was living upper middle class at the time. In fact, you now for Oklahoma, um, but I, I think that I think it generationally this sort of like not this is sort of like knowledge or memory of this time frame that's sort of been glossed over. Like, yeah, there was a huge you know like this was a very complex and difficult time, um, and I and I want to I want to be clear that you know I, I recognize that, but a lot of folks who are above you know, 30, who are over 30, remember this time. Whereas like this idea that try, trying to sell the American dream to a, to, to a 17 year old who's in, who has just seen war and pandemic and, uh, you know, um, you know, vile political rhetoric being tossed around, like try, try to sell them on the idea that, that, um, that, uh, just sitting across the table from somebody will, 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 you'll be able to work things out. Like they, 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 they have no ability to go back and, 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 and fondly remember the, an era that they never experienced. And that never really existed to begin with. It was just the, um, the, the, the illusion of it that existed. Um, Zoomers in particular have no reference point for this whatsoever. Zoomers are going to change. They're going to save the world. I think. I think yeah, gonna... I, I, I actually, the, I, this, I have a little anecdotal moment where, um, in 2017, um, I, I, ha I had a moment where I was talking to uh, Ai Weiwei, the uh, Chinese uh, artist, um, and uh, we're in a conversation and uh, uh, with with a, with a couple other with a couple couple other people, and um, I thought it was funny because, like, you know, uh, I think somebody asked both of us. Hey, you know, who or what do you think, uh, like, what do you think we can tell what, what we as activists, uh, as, as, you know, um, I, I don't think of myself as old. I hope not, but like, I'm, I am, well, I am, old, but I'm even I'm, older. So please I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties now, you know, so I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking, uh, you know, so I, you know, but you know, I'm looking at younger people and, you know, and he's, you know, he he said, yeah, we can, we can, we can teach them this. We can show them this. We can show them this. And like, I just, I, I was just like, no, I actually, I've learned more from nineteen-year-olds who yell at me than I than I ever have, you know, that I could that I could teach them. So I I I, I dispute this idea that you know that we need to raise or or teach or um to, to do anything because like the this generation the, the incoming generation is going to do what they're going to do and everybody else is just going to be in their way a couple of final things yeah uh, and they're going to crush us they are i know <laughs> I, I find this all the time i'm kept on my toes all the time by generation z but you know they i've been taught a huge amount by and i will continue because i'm an older millennial i was born in 1984 they mean better yeah it is true um, but socialism is very good, very good skincare routine. Um, just a couple of final things. So firstly, you. Now, I know the slogan that's been popularized, particularly in the US left, is not me, but us. I get that. Yeah. So that's a caveat. And I know this is about movements from below and struggles from below. But 
And I know you stood before, but it was a very different context because now there's these big political movements and politicization that have emerged. You have a lot of supporters and followers. Would you consider running again and maybe expanding the squad of progressive members of the House of Representatives? Uh, I, I, I've, I've thought about this, you know, and I, the answer is, the answer is no. Um, I think that, you know, I, seeing, seeing somebody who, um, you know, and I, you know, like I, I mostly just ran to get some ideas out there and to get them out there into like the, the, the consciousness and, you know, like really start to like, uh, motivate people into like, into like being more political and say, be, be able to say things like, you know, defund the police and things like that. You know, they, these were things that I was saying in 2018. Um, they're out there now and they're, they're mainstream. And, you know, at least, at least on the left, they're, they're mainstream and they're discussed. Um, and uh, no, I, I, I just, I fully support, I, I fully support uh, a lot of candidates and stuff who, who do, who aren't as, uh, you know, who don't have, who don't have as difficult a background as I, as I do, you know, in terms of like, you know, I, I think I would struggle because, you know, I, you know, in 2018 at the time, I didn't realize how, how hard it is to be out there and to put yourself out there. Um, I don't think people give Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez enough credit for the amount of vitriol and hate and, uh, and, and also the, the adoration, the sort of, um, I think idealistic adoration, the sort of celebrity aspect that like, that like somebody who's, who is essentially, um, who essentially went from being a, uh, from being out in the cold, being a protester out in, you know, the, 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 the windswept freezing, um, you know, plains of, of South and North Dakota, um, to being a member of Congress. Uh, in that short of time and how difficult that is. Um, I don't, I don't think I would run again, but I certainly support those who have the same values and the same opinions um, fully. And, you know, and I talk to them, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I think, I think they all know, I think they all know um, that I support this stuff and that I care about this stuff and that I'm super, and that they're doing a great job. They're doing far, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is doing far better you know, politically than I ever think I could imagine. I mean, again, with the caveat, not me, but us, do you yeah. think AOC will become president one day? Uh, I am not sure. Um, and, you know, like, here's the thing. Um, I don't know. I, I, me personally, I don't support the office of, the, I, I don't support the, the, the idea of the office of the president of the United States. I think that it's one of the more toxic aspects of, of what, of what of one of the biggest problems that we have in the U.S. is this is this idea of like oh if we just have this one person we put them in charge of everything then we'll solve everything and we'll vote them in every every four or so years. I hope that she doesn't. I hope I hope she's able to transcend this notion of there being a pre presidency because I think I think it's a I think it's a mistake. I, I think it would be a, you know I, I would actually be you know if she was Obamafied essentially. I think that I think that would be that 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 would I don't think that would be a good thing personally. That's just my opinion. Um, you know, I you know obviously she's free to do whatever she wants to do, and I will you know and I support her in whatever she does. But you know, I think that I think that the I think that the office of the president is not. I don't think I don't think she could be as powerful in that office to be honest because of how it's made because of how it's run and how it's made. You know, it it you. you, you 
it, it, it really is its own beast. And I, and I hope that um, maybe, maybe one day we'll have a, we'll, we will, we will have a United States where we no longer have a president. Finally, how do we build up international solidarity? How do we join the dots? Because we're all suffering from the threat, of course, of the climate emergency, which is an existential threat. Uh, we've all across Britain, across Europe, across much of the world, Latin America, elsewhere, India, the rise of a of a xenophobic right, a proto-fascist right, or worse, if we're going to be honest. Yeah. Uh, the 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 racism, the uh, the anti-LGBTQ backlash, particularly against the the onslaught against trans people, uh, the assault on workers' rights, uh, the assault on on women. How how do we build uh, you know the, the onslaught, the cuts, and we've already had a austerity over the last few years, and clearly again the powerful, more than plausible that they'll do the same thing as a financial crash, which is expect working people, minorities, people of color to pay the price all over again. Yeah. How do we join those dots? How do we build up movements that link together across across borders? Yeah. It, again, it comes down to intersectionality. We have we have common interests, we have common values, we have common, you know, opposition. We have common institutions that we're that we are trying to change or that we're trying to um you know, eliminate or that we're trying to push aside or convince to do something different, you know, so finding these commonalities and exchanging notes and, and standing, you know, in solidarity, even at a distance is I think extremely valuable in movement building, because I do think that, I do think that this is, I think that this, I think that this, that the middle of this century will be dominated by international solidarity movements. Um, I think that what you saw this summer with um, the Black Lives Matter protests that were international um, is going to become much bigger, broader, uh, and more uh, and more powerful um, as as the century progresses. You know, um, if you think that this year has been wild, you know, just just imagine what 2030 is going to be like, you know, I think, I think that this is, I, th I think that there are going to be massive social movements uh, in response to um, the rise of reactionary politics and reactionary populism. Incredible stuff, Chelsea. That was amazing. Thank you so much. It's a huge honor. Thank you. And privilege, particularly in a time of tumult, quite a few things going on. Hey, you know, it's, I hate to say it, but you know, like th Things may get worse before they get better, but they can get better. And that's, I think, a very, very hopeful message that we, I think we all need to embrace often in pretty bleak times. Yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, thank you so much, Chelsea. It's been uh, an inspiring conversation to have with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Chelsea Manning. What a huge honour to have her. Now, don't forget to like the show on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast and share the show with everyone. If you want to support us as we expand, we do really appreciate it. Either on the supporter function in the podcast description or at patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. We've got loads to come, so speak soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.